This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2010 conversation with John T. Edge, author and director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, University of Mississippi, and Matt and Ted Lee, award-winning cookbook authors. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, What is Real Southern Cooking?, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. With me in the studio are three longtime friends, Matt and Ted Lee from Charleston and John T. Edge from Oxford, Mississippi. And for the purpose of discussion, we're going to talk about what is the real Southern cooking? And is it the very traditional cooking that folks my generation grew up with? You know, fried chicken, vegetables cooked to death, as my daddy used to say, biscuits, cornbread, nothing else, nothing fancy, rice, rice and gravy, fried meat, a vegetable cooked to death, and banana pudding or tapioca for dessert. Now, for the sake of discussion, Matt and Ted Lee are going to say, well, cooking evolves and we can take traditional Southern recipes, we can modernize them. We can make them simple, as they did in their latest cookbook. And so for the, the purpose of discussion, Ted, I'm going to go to you first. All right. Bring what, it on. Bring it on. Okay. What would you do if all you had to eat was that old-fashioned Southern cooking like I talked about? You, you're so skinny now, I'd, you wouldn't be skinny if you I'd ate. eat it up. You'd eat it up. Walter, I think that's the exciting thing about um, Southern cooking today is that um, – I think what's interesting about the South today is that people are more open to different interpretations of Southern food. Um, and so, you know, the old school interpretation of Southern food, like the one you're talking about, um, biscuits and gravy, I want it, but I don't want it every day. I mean, I want variety in my diet within the Southern diet. Um, so my palette of ingredients is completely Southern. And what I do with them from day to day might change. And that, to me, is really exciting. Okay, so you're not talking about, you're not dismissing the old. But, but you, you know, I mean, I did grow up on that steady diet of dinner in the middle of the day. We had rice and gravy with every meal and fried chicken, pork chops. I never had anything other than a fried pork chop till probably I was in college. Uh, and then it was smothered in mushroom mushroom, mushroom soup, which wasn't much better for your cholesterol. You ate really well, Walter. <laughs> you know, ham. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Occasionally fish, of course, be fried. And my daddy was a hunter, so occasionally we'd have roast venison. But if we if he got birds, or you know, they'd be fried. So sure. I mean, sure. I guess it's the one I still only weigh 165 pounds. Mm. <laughs> Well, it sounds like those were good old days. And well, they were good old days. A lot of people um, who experience those good old days and cherish those memories and those sensations and those smells, um, you know, hold tight to them. And we, in our travels and in our um, talks about Southern food, often encounter people who hold so tight to them um, that they forget that those good old days were actually probably an abomination to the his, their great great grandparents yeah. you know that the use of um for example uh you know powdered banana pudding mix is the correct ingredient in a traditional real southern banana pudding Ooh. of the sort that i remember my grandmother making then then the opposite I, we t- tell the story in our first book of apple float um uh, an old roommate of ours whose family's from the upstate of South Carolina loved this apple float that his grandmother made. It was made with um, applesauce out of a jar, um, custard out of a box, and Cool Whip, and a, a layered soft dessert, and and man, it was good. And, and so Ted and I went into the kitchen, and we couldn't stand the, the process nature of this dessert, and so we sort of took it back, and we started with real apples um, that we seasoned, and there was cinnamon and sugar in there, and we cooked them down almost like an apple butter, uh, and then did a real custard, because there's nothing better than a real custard, and then we did real whipped cream, because there's nothing better than real whipped cream, is there, and he thought that was horrifying, um, and we told his father this and said, you know, we, we did this and he's so upset at us for ruining apple float. 
And his dad said, oh, well, what you're doing is more like what his great-grandmother did. And so, you know, Southern food is discontinuous and it doesn't progress or, or erode. It, it's just whatever it is to you at that moment. Well, you know, it sounds like the generation in, let's say, the 60s and 70s was probably the first generation of white middle-class Southerners who didn't have somebody in the kitchen. Right. And so they began to take shortcuts. Mm-hmm. There wasn't somebody in the kitchen who was making the, cooking the apples down, whipping the real cream, and, and that kind of thing. So you get it out of a box. And it's also marketing. You know, you could, right. you know, you see on TV, you can get the so-and-so instant pudding mix, and there you go. Um, this is John T. chiming in. I think... That's at the core of this. There's a kind of lost generation in Southern food. That lost generation having been sold on cream of mushroom soup as a proper binder for a sauce. That generation being sold on, on cream of mushroom soup as a kind of culinary duct tape that'll fix anything. <laughs> um, as a graduate but, student back then, I can, I can tell you, what about tuna and green pea casserole? With, sure. with, with, those with, things <laughs> are universal. And when I said that, every one of us laughed. And I think too often we as Southerners end up laughing about our own food. We let, other, we let others define our food, and we let others define our food as lesser, and we end up with this chip on our shoulder about our food. And we don't claim it for farm-to-table connections that were there generations past. We don't claim it as a regional cuisine worthy of respect. We sit there, we do the setup joke, we provide the punchline, and we provide the cream mushroom soup. And that's kind of sad. But that, you know, that what John T. was saying about the um, cream of mushroom soup, the other thing about it is people, um, I think, outside the South perceive that to be part of Southern cooking. But it wasn't just Southern cooking. It was mid-century cooking. Mm-hmm. That was everywhere. Take, take a community cookbook from the Midwest, like Wisconsin, from that era. We could probably say middle-class households all over America sure. no longer had somebody else in the Midwest that had called it hired help in mm-hmm. the kitchen. Been, would have been white in the South. It had been predominantly African-American. So somebody, the, the lady of the house was doing the cooking, and it was, had to be quicker and easier. Right. Well, and there was a new person in the kitchen, and that was the food companies of America that was kind of the industrial food complex stepping into that kitchen and saying, look what we have, this panoply of new ingredients, these panoply of shortcuts. They were now in the kitchen. It's, it is about a loss of labor and a loss of expertise, but it's also about, you know, we as consumers, our mothers were sold something and we were sold wasp nest white bread and cream of mushroom soup. Yeah. But I don't want to denigrate the the post-war period, the mid-century cooking, uh, anyway. That was Southern cooking of its time. I don't deny that. Um, and you know, mentioning the funerals and these traditions, like we have to acknowledge that Southern food isn't just the food itself. It's uh, it's the culture, it's the ingredients, um, it's uh, the people, it's um, the traditions, and uh, you know part of the reason we love it so much from whatever period we recall is that it's so tied to storytelling and uh, being in a great place. I mean, the South is awesome, no doubt about it. And so, you know, it makes sense that we uh, feel very strongly attached to the food and the times and the meals that we had there. Um, And I don't want to take away from any of that. I just don't want to have to stick to the cream and mushroom soup going forward. (laughs) Matt, you're exactly right. And I I was thinking... Grouping, and when we've talked about barbecue, when I've had Dan Huntley on the mm-hmm. show, whether you're talking about a real com- barbecue or chicken bog, you're talking about, in reality, a community event in a small town. Uh, my daughter now lives in, in, in Dover, Massachusetts, and the neighbors said they wanted everybody to come over. They were going to have a barbecue. And she very politely told them that barbecue was a noun and what they were doing was cooking out mm-hmm. on the pa- You know, they were grilling. They were not barbecuing. Well, you know, sometimes it takes leaving uh, the pl- you know the place you grew up in to realize um, how good you had it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, uh, if you look back on the last century, there's a lot of moving around that helped make Southern food what it is. Um, I think if it, it all occurred in a vacuum, that that it wouldn't, you know, have been as excellent. Um, you see the, 
the northern migration, a lot of African Americans moving up north, um, helped define what southern food is because it wasn't until they got up there and realized, um, you know, what they were missing. It was the same for us um, uh, going up to New York in the early 1990s and realizing that, that they didn't have boiled peanuts up there. And, and that's, you know, that was the start of your business. Why would they not have boiled peanuts in New York? And then you be, begin talking about it, and you begin um, connecting with other Southerners up in New York, and you where are the raw peanuts? And, and this whole dialogue goes on um, that helps make Southern food better defined and, and tastier, I'd argue. <laughs> this is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2010 conversation with John T. Edge, author and director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, University of Mississippi, and Matt and Ted Lee, award-winning cookbook authors. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, What is Real Southern Cooking?, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Let's talk about updating Southern cooking. And, and, you know, that's one of the things. Southern cooking has clearly evolved. When when the first Europeans came here, when the English came here, they were doing their heavy puddings and their roast and what have you. Quickly, they they came into contact with Native Americans who produced, hey, all of a sudden you got corn. You know, a version of cornbread appears. And then you've got the West African influence, which is where we get our cooking the vegetables with the, the piece of the piece of meat. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess one of the favorite things I try to do with folks when I try to tell them about the multicultural nature of South Carolina, and we were multicultural before the term even existed, was to sit down to a typical family feast, Christmas or Thanksgiving, and then identify the ethnic origin or or the continental origin of fried chicken, the vegetables, sweet potatoes, cornbread. I mean, you know, you name it. So... But in the case of the vegetables, you're taking European vegetables cooked in a West African tradition. That's Southern. That's Southern. That's Southern, yeah. Um, And that's what's so exciting. And I think um, in this day and age, I mean, largely because of people like John T. and the Southern Foodways Alliance, I think um, people are really digging deeper into the South's culinary history. Whether you're in Charleston or New Orleans or the Mountain South, people are digging deeper and they're realizing it's, you know, First of all, there's not just one Southern cuisine. It's not this monolithic thing. Um, but also that, that the more you dig into the history of it, the richer it becomes. The more you, the more you learn. Um, I mean, one of the discover, discoveries that um, I made recently is that um, sesame oil was a big thing in Charleston and the Low Country in 1735. There was a sesame oil press in Charleston in 1735, and that a lot of the planters, that was their preferred salad oil. I didn't even know that Charleston planters were eating salad back (laughs) then. I thought salad was something that came out, you know, in this century. Um, But also that they were using a very blonde, like very different from the, you know, the very um, darkly, heavily flavored um, sesame oil we know of today. It was a very almost tasteless oil and that was sort of an, the appeal and and the reason why they went with sesame oil is because they tried olives there was there were olive groves down in um, Georgia that weren't producing anything and so when sesame came in it was like oh this is brilliant we have this oil and you know just finding little things like that and that eggplant you know we think of eggplant as Italian well guinea squash was around you know in the 16 late 1600s and 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 um, farmers were experimenting um, with with all different kinds of crops, and that sort of creative spark that the farmers had to try this and see if it worked out, and that sort of thing. I think that's always been a part of um, Southern cooking and farming, and 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 that I think it's underreported that the creativity uh, that went into the founding of of Southern cooking. Well, and, and, I, and I think, and by the way, we tried to grow olives here too, and they, they produced them, but they said they didn't taste right. I don't know what the difference. <laughs> right. But of course, part the of the soil. You know, Matt, I just don't know, but that, they, they did, they, they, they grew olives. They tried to grow um, uh, cultivar, real, you know, real grapes. Yeah, right. Uh, they tried every, you know, make money. That was the name of the, the game in the, in the colonial period. And so experimentation, you know, it's, it's amazing to me in the 18th century is how quickly people if this doesn't work, we drop it. Mm-hmm. In the 19th century, Southerners, for example, stuck with cotton, stuck with cotton. 
their grandfathers would have been horrified that they stayed in that rut. Mm-hmm. I had an architect who said to me the other day, we were talking about these concepts of trying different things, what works, what doesn't, and how something, you know, Southern or from another nationality becomes iconic, mm-hmm. matters to that place. And he was working with this definition that tradition is innovation that succeeds. And I like that because the word tradition is so malleable and can be offensive to some because of all the history and and some of that um, quite um, sad history packed into it. But that idea that tradition encompasses a number of innovations and you grab hold of the one that works and you roll it out. Well, you know, there was an English historian who wrote uh, uh, a book called The Invention of Tradition and how in the Western world most of the great celebrations and everything we do were simply invented probably in the beginning in the late 18th century. Uh, and the, the prime example is the Scots and their kilts, their tartans, sure. uh, which were done to promote the woolen industry. Mm-hmm. There's a more plebeian example. Um, there's this great book called Ghost Dancing on the Cracker Circuit. Um, it was a PhD, um, it was a dissertation, and he looks at the Mayberry Festival um, in, in uh, Mount Pilot, North Carolina. He looks at any number of festivals and says the, the uh, Banana Festival in Fulton, Kentucky, and says, you know, how are we constructing our place? Food serves that role for so many people, um, kind of reinvented traditions wherein all of a sudden now there's a barbecue contest that's been going five years and ends up being the defining event for a town when there may not be a precedent for that. It's interesting how we, we manipulate food um, and identity. Well, the okra strut over in nearby Irmo, South Carolina right. is one of the old, and the chitlin strut the chitlin down strut. in uh, the down great in South and, and my wife, whose grandmother was a Sally from Sally, said, none of our family ever put a chitlin in his or her mouth. <laughs> right, but they put dollars in their pockets based on the arrival of tourists for the chitlin festival now. <laughs> oh, John T., describe for us your favorite meal. It can be breakfast, dinner, or supper. Please, no lunches. That's, that's, that, that, is a, that is a Yankee invention. <laughs> Thank you for saving me from myself. Um, <laughs> my favorite meal comes at midday. How's that for okay. term? All right. um, and uh, it is a meal of my childhood. It is, as a boy, riding my bike about less than a mile, probably half a mile from my home in Clinton, Georgia, to Old Clinton Barbecue. Um, you, know, you drive up. I ride up on my bike. There's sawdust on the floor out front concrete floor inside. There's a dog leg flue cooker inside with hickory on one end. And by the time it's coursed down the flue cooker, the smoke has cooled. There are hams and shoulders on the pit. Miss um, Coulter, the, the wife of the owner is behind the counter. She's got this monstrous cleaver. And when she swings that cleaver, the fluorescent lights bang off of it. And you can see this kind of glint. She looks fiendish in that moment, even though she's got curls on her head. Um, and is probably at this age, I'm nine. She's probably 70. So no, no nightmare on Elm Street. No nightmare. <laughs> no nightmare. But a nightmare for the Where pig, perhaps, but this? not for the human. <laughs> um, but when that cleaver hits that meat and that ham falls apart and she heaps it up, onto a barbecue sandwich and gives me a side of Brunswick stew. That's my meal. Okay. All right. Tiddly, what about your favorite meal? I would say um, breakfast on Morrison Drive, fried whiting over grits, side of collard greens. Um, And, you know, like John T., it's a small place. Martha Lou Gadsden's kitchen, three generations of women in her family cooking there. Um, and it's just, you know, it's one of those food memories. It's so, you know, the food, the fried whiting is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. The grits are great, super salty, super buttery. Mm-hmm. Um, the greens are great, but it's also about, you know, it being so proximate to where I grew up. Um, Morrison Drive is the northern extension of East Bay Street in Charleston. Um, and I think that's part of all our food memories. And, and, and when you say, like, what's your favorite meal? Um, you know, it isn't just the food, it's the people, um, it's the tradition, mm-hmm. um, and knowing that she's, she's always been there and hopefully always will be. All right, Matt, what about yours? Uh, one of my 
favorite and most memorable Southern meals took place uh, far from our home base in Charleston. It was um, not far from Berea, Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky. It was late August, and it was a snack. I guess you'd call it. It was mid-afternoon and um, more later afternoon. And our hosts uh, served us just thick, maybe three-quarters of an inch slices of some tomatoes they had grown uh, on the property. They're farmers, Mm -hmm. um, bean farmers. Um, And then they served uh, soupy they served beans out of the shell, soupy, um, cooked down so much that they had a thick gravy around them uh, with fresh baked cornbread and minced raw onion, also from the garden. And the tomatoes, though, were the main course. Um, you know, the, the soup beans were like a garnish. Um, and the tomatoes had nothing on them but salt. <laughs> but it was the height of summer. They were German yellow or German red tomatoes. Um, they were so super sweet mountain tomatoes grown in perfect soil. And, you know, they had nothing unique on the same experience really in Italy or anywhere else in the world. Um, but we were in the South. They're right off the property. It was the perfect moment for those um, tomatoes. And, and those soup beans served in that traditional way with the cornbread, which we was bone dry, not a grain of domino sugar in it and uh, crumbled into the beans uh, along with the minced onion. And it had all these things that, that the fancy chefs, you know, in New York or Los Angeles are looking mm-hmm. for, um, you know, the unctuous sort of umami, uh, you know, sort of like baked in goodness. Um, it had the, the heat of the raw onion. You know, you forget that, that raw onion, it's almost like a shot of, of hot sauce um, if you don't cook it down. Um, it had, you know, tartness. It, it had everything going for it. And uh, it was just in one simple little, you know, bite here, bite there, spoonful here, like the perfect three bites. And you, you know, you don't, Matt didn't mention the name of the farmer, but as an example of how enmeshed our worlds are, as soon as he mentioned he was near Berea, Kentucky, and that he was he was going to be eating a tomato, I leaned over to Ted and said, oh, that's Bill Best. Bill Best, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, these experiences are, um, are, are epic, and yet they are cheap. They're not, the price of admission is not expensive. Um, they are not, um, you can reproduce them almost everywhere, um, but still you have to create a, an alchemy. You know, have, I don't know whether having Bill Best there made it perfect for me. Um, I haven't tried to recreate it um, to my knowledge of them. Maybe I have, because um, I just can't get tomatoes that good. Well, and, and sadly, for example, there's no longer on Edisto Island a commercial truck farm producing tomatoes. Much of the last two decades, the tomatoes grown out on uh, the Sea Islands and Johns Island and Edisto um, have not been very worth eating, um, grown, you know, for truck trade. And uh, these these heirloom varieties, you know, those, the ones of the last two decades have been sort of efficiency tomatoes, tomatoes for a mass market, um, ver- particular varieties not developed in the South, but developed in, you know, a Sacramento um a corporate environment to travel long distances and to meet this, you know, voracious appetite for um, food that's that's something quite different than the personal backyard um, variety of agriculture that that is fading. And maybe that is one ingredient that, that brings a wistfulness to people when they, they, you know, think about Southern food maybe fading out or being corrupted in some fashion. There's this, there is this element of um, homegrown, localized Southern food um, that we may lose simply because, you know, the sophistication of our times edits out the nooks and crannies. Well, now, you can get privately on Edisto at Georgian Pink's yes. mm-hmm. and also at King's Market. They grow their own sure. tomatoes, and they grow yeah. beefsteaks and big, and big boys yeah. and, and, and that kind of thing. Now, I won't say this is my favorite meal, but one of the things that I enjoy in the summertime is a fresh tomato, a slice of really thick bologna, not the prepackaged thing, and a slice of Vidalia onion with Duke mayonnaise. Mm. Sounds good mm, to me. Sounds great. <laughs> my stomach's rumbling. That's, that, that's okay. It was rumbling when we started. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, t- we're, t- we're, talking, we're talking about food. Now, see, 
when, when you all talked about your favorite meal, and I, I understand those, I, I'm afraid my favorite meal goes is nostalgic. It's not going to be repeated again. And this was growing up in Mobile, and in the wintertime, having what would have been a very traditional, a lot of pork in the, in the winter, fried pork chops, candied sweet potatoes, not too, not really, not really that ooey gooey stuff you have now. You, you usually cook with more with a, with some orange, and maybe there were marshmallows on top. Turnip greens cooked to a fairly well. To a fairly well, cornbread. But my granddad, who died in 1955, one of the things that we would do is I can just remember the, those greens had been cooking all morning, and they just oh they smelled heavenly because of course the house was closed up; it was cold. And he introduced me to pot liquor. Mm. And what we used to do is, he used to actually drink it, and I would do that. But if you butter your cornbread and you open it up and you spoon the pot liquor on it, that kind of winter meal, just that, the memory. And, but part of this is associative because I would be work, he, my grandfather was a big garden. We'd be out in the yard doing whatever the last thing you do in the, you know, in the wintertime, get stuff ready, and then come in, and there's this, this dinner in the middle of the day, and you smell the turnip greens cooking and that well, kind of thing. Well, pot liquor is alive and well in the 21st century. Um, you know, and I, I'll mention a couple of examples of which my colleagues are, are well aware. The, um, well, one, I wrote, and this is maybe an example of how pot liquor is dead. Um, I wrote my thesis on pot liquor um, in graduate school, and maybe that could be what killed pot liquor. Um, yeah, the beginning of the end, about a debate in 1931 between Huey Long, who at that point is senator-elect, U.S. senator-elect from Louisiana, and um, Julian Harris, the son of Joel Chandler Harris, who was at that time an editor of the Atlanta Constitution, and they debated the relative merits of dunking or crumbling cornbread into pot liquor. Um, but in more modern times, this summer, the Southern Foodways Alliance, the organization I direct and the organization on which Ted serves the board, um, will stage only the 10th Pot Liquor Film Festival. Um, this one will be in New York City, others scattered around the South. And when you walk in the door at that event, um, there's a big pot of greens from which the greens have been extracted, and all that's left is the pot liquor. And before you can enter the event, you must take a shot of pot liquor. As both tonic as your ingestion of this place, your willingness to be, if you're not from the South, a kind of situational Southerner for that moment. So I think there's a new generation that might embrace pot liquor, might see the possibilities again. It's so good for you. Yeah, it's, it's restorative. Yeah. It is. I, I mean, I, I crave it like the way I crave coffee. I have totally anecdotal evidence that if you want to uh, convert for want of a better word, a Yankee, to Southern food, um, serve them uh, pot liquor with some stray greens floating through so they can, you know, don't confuse it. Um, that, you know, they can associate it with soup so they know it's not harmful. or it's called a consomme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Just a few stray greens in there. Um, serve them that with uh, two eggs poached in it for breakfast, and they will just, you know, fall in love. Okay. Guaranteed. All right. The vegetarians, too. I mean, I see chefs poaching fish in pot liquor now. I've seen that on a couple of occasions. A chef in North Florida doing a beautiful um, grouper poached in pot liquor. Mm -hmm. um, it's hip. A lot of the, yeah. I mean, I've seen pot liquor cocktails. Well, I've drank a pot liquor cocktail. What, what, what would be the alcohol that goes into it? Vodka. Vodka? <laughs> yeah, I think you dirty your Good martini southern with vodka. Pot liquor oh, instead uh, of olive like a juice. dirty martini. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of people, I mean, that. A lot of chefs, um, not just in the South, but all across the country, are, 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 are getting deeper into it and sort of, you know, there's this, a lot of people refer to it as revival or something like that. And, and, and I think the key to the forward motion in that regard is that people are being mindful of tradition, but not being bound by it. And so, you know, they're imagining situations for pot liquor that we might not have considered but from my perspective, anything that gets me drinking pot liquor more often is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a cocktail or a jello shot, if it gets me drinking pot liquor or consuming pot liquor pot liquor more often than nice. I do in the 21st century, it's a good thing. And what's happening is the smart chefs of whom I know, I know a 
quite a few smart chefs that are embracing these ideals. They understand the roots of that cuisine. They understand the roots of pot liquor, and they know that before they start riffing. They understand what pot liquor was before they conceive what pot liquor might be. Before they get to pot liquor jello shot, they understand pot liquor past. And that's what the three of us find exciting. You know, they, this new generation of chefs, this new generation of home cooks has a respect for the past and then they leverage that for the future. And I think it's because, you know, people have, they're sort of gateway things like barbecue and fried chicken. Mm -hmm. Like chefs who've tried to do those things understand that you can't just like create it from whole cloth. You have to understand where it came from. You can't just like say, oh, I've got a bullet smoker. I'm trying my things here and there. I mean, you can do that, but it's a whole lot easier to read about, you know, how it came about. What barbecue tradition are you trying to do? Um, and I talked to a restaurateur um, who has great barbecue and re restaurant in Brooklyn, but it's very specific. Um, it's, you know, nothing is cooked with sauce. It's all dry rubbed. And I said, how would you describe your barbecue? And he said, it's Central Texas in spirit with New York vernacular. And it's like, he knows, you know, he's not, he's not ignorant. He, you know, it's, it's not like he's trying to not do- Not flailing around in the dark. St. Louis, he's, he's not- It's a respectful statement. Yeah, it's, it's Central Texas spirit. And, and within that, he was saying it was Central Texas because everything's dry rubbed. Mm -hmm. um, his dry rub is pretty far out. But um, <laughs> another thing that made it Central Texas in spirit is that everything's served by the- charged by the pound. So you order a quarter pound of this or a half pound of that. Um, communal tables. Mm -hmm. So he, he's thinking not just the meat itself, but the experience of it. Yeah. More holistically, like Central Texas in Spirit, New York vernacular. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2010 conversation with John T. Edge, author and director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, University of Mississippi and Matt and Ted Lee, award-winning cookbook authors. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, What is Real Southern Cooking?, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. There was a wonderful barbecue restaurant here in Columbia, which no longer exists. Uh, it was family and kids didn't want to keep it up and somebody else bought it. It was in the, used to be in the, what, the Rosewood Shopping Center doesn't even exist anymore. But these, and it had all this thing you talk about, communal tables, the whole mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. The new owners, I went in there and ordered a barbecue sandwich and they started weighing it out instead of just plopping it on the sandwich. Right. And I thought, this place isn't going to last. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it didn't. So it's not a generous you, way of serving a sandwich. No, no. It was, uh, I mean. It's also not. It's also not this way, you know. It's like that's okay in Central Texas because that's how it's done. It's yeah. done by the pound, and you know, you expect that. But here, no, no, no. I mean, here you make a nice fat sandwich. You make and, a nice fat sandwich, exactly. And you know, that's. <laughs> hey, look! You're, you're, I'd like to point out it still might have gone out of business, not because yeah. of that, but because <laughs> you know they didn't run the back office right or something well, like it, that. It, but it, 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 it could, well, but the, you don't like the scientific method. It, well, no, but the, the, but the whole atmosphere of the place changed. Right. 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 Well, there, there are ways that one can innovate with barbecue. I think about my favorite barbecue in South Carolina right now, and I'm sure I hope to find at some point in the future something that bests this. But I wonder, Scott's Barbecue in Hemingway, mm -hmm. um, and you. You think about that place as hyper-traditional. You know, it is in the middle of nowhere on a lonely country road. There are pits out back, burnished to kind of ebony from smoke over the years. Um, and yet that place has only been in business about 30 years. And there are small innovations that are the equivalent of weighing barbecue. Um, they've got burners underneath the metal tables. So the health department said, you know, you need to keep this barbecue warm while you're chopping it up. So they put hot plates underneath the metal tables and the ambient heat from the hot plate warms the metal tables. So they satisfy the health department and yet you as the customer don't notice it. It's like, oh yeah, everything's just the way it always has been. Mm -hmm. There are small innovations that allow us to keep up you know, the kind of tradition in the modern day, not take compromises, but make modern day adaptations. What's your favorite dish to cook, Ted Lee? I think my favorite dish to cook um, 
it's probably a big pot of greens. I mean, it sounds one note, but... Um, you just took Matt's answer. That's he, right. Yeah, that he's was... upset. Took mine, too. <laughs> um, all right, let me, let me try a different tactic. Okay. One of my favorite things to cook is something I came across really recently, and it was an idea that I developed um, in concert with Matthew for a story that we're writing. Um, and it's a spicy watermelon gazpacho with crab. I've been thinking a lot about gazpacho because um, uh, we were at an event and a woman said, why is gazpacho in Mary Randolph's book, uh, 1834? And I was thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure. So, you know, just thinking like gazpacho in the 1800s in the South, what would you do? And I'm here in 2010, I'm making, I wanna make a really cool, delicious gazpacho, but I want it to be a little bit different. So I just thought, you know, let's use a southern fruit, watermelon, sweeten it up a little bit, you know, give it some heat, habanero chili. I mean, that's the kind of creative mm -hmm. fun I have in the kitchen. Um, and we had so much fun developing it and making it and putting a little crab salad in the center of it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it sounds restaurant chefy kind of stuff, but um, that's the way we have fun. That's the, way, that's the way I enjoy my kitchen is like taking southern stuff and and making new flavors and well, is the crab salad is that West Indies salad in the middle? It's a little bit like West Indies salad. It's not marinated though. Okay, I you, could have described you, that as one of my favorite first right. eating experiences. Yeah. All right, John T, your your favorite. Um, Feel free to take I'll, greens. Yeah, if you want to. no, no, no. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to leave the greens and the pot liquor are yours, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, I'll answer that as as my most satisfying cooking experience, um, which is not exactly what you asked, but what the heck. Um, I, at least once a month, um, on a Saturday night, will put on a pot of grits for my son. Um, and instead of cooking them on the stovetop, I put five parts to one part grits in a crock pot, and I put it on low. And I put it on about 11 o'clock. Um, I use Anson Mills grits um, because I got South Carolina roots and because I think their grits are stunningly good. Um, so I'll put that five to one mixture in a crock pot at 11 o'clock and my son will wake me up at seven. And a film will have formed over the top. I'll have to dig and stir and dislodge, um, add a little bit more water, add a little bit of cream. But that's the most satisfying moment is for my son to wake up I pull the lid off the crock pot. Corn perfumes the house. There's bacon, usually from Alan Benton of Madisonville, Tennessee, frying. Um, and then I cheat like hell on the biscuits. I use Marshalls from Mobile. your neck of the woods, Mobile. <laughs> um, and I scramble yard eggs pulled by our friend Billy Ray Brown or another friend, Vivian Neal. Um, that's the most satisfying meal. And that meal ties me to my upbringing, my father cooking the same way. The innovation is grits in a crock pot. Try it, it works. Yeah. You talk about agribusiness coming into the, to the kitchen, yeah, instant grits. I mean, people say, oh, you can't tell the difference. Oh, yes, you can tell the <laughs> Bette Midler once um, equated instant grits with buttered kitty litter. <laughs> <laughs> she was right. <laughs> okay. Matt Lee, your meal. And what was the question what's again? Your, what's your favorite thing to cook? <laughs> the fav my favorite thing to cook, um, I'm going to say, um, for me, the pot of greens and the cornbread are, are the anchors. And, and they're satisfying because I know them well. I don't have to measure anything. I, don't ha I barely have to think. Um, they're endlessly satisfying to my family and to whoever comes over. I know that. And so there's a confidence there. Um, that you've got, a, well, first of all, you've got a meal there between the cornbread and the greens. So if all else fails, you've got something to fall back on. But as long as I've got the pot of greens going on the back and I can whip up my skillet of cornbread in uh, 15 minutes or until I smell it, smelling right, um, I'm free to go on and, and get a little more creative and rock the squid and watermelon and cheese salad if I want to. Um, but it's just wonderful knowing that um, you know, you're clever in the kitchen and uh, that you've got, you know, some that, that rock on the back of the stove, that, that pot of greens. Or what, what greens? Collards predominantly, but um, 
I keep a garden and I grow a lot of mustards and they grow themselves pretty much. Um, and uh, I do grow turnips as well. And so I don't let those greens go, go to waste. I don't let the beet greens go to waste. So my pot of greens might, might look like the United Nations. Okay. All right. Interesting mix. You know, a lot of people don't like mustards because they, you, you really have to have a taste. I mean, that's, they can be strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of restaurants you can get them. There are not many places that I've found, even in South Carolina, where you can get mustard greens on the menu. It's it's kind of rare. They're hard to find. Is there any find. place we can go in a few minutes? I'm sorry? Is there any place we can go in a few minutes? Yeah. Oh, oh no, no. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. For you're, getting, you're getting hungry. <laughs> uh, and there are a lot of places now where collards are on the menu regularly, but in most cases, I don't think they're cooked enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that's for modern taste. I also think a lot of times the seasonings are um, an afterthought, and that they're they're taking a shortcut or two that doesn't appeal to me, like um, you know half a cup of garlic salt or um, something like that. The seasonings I prefer are either smoked cured meats of any sort, you know, smoked turkey wing, um, uh, hog jowl if you've got it. Um, Bacon, if that's all you've got, and virtually anything will work, but something smoky um, and or uh, some sort of um, sweet vegetables chopped fine and caramelized in the pan before I get started. That gets the seasonings off right, I've found. And I was going to ask you what meat you used in your in, in your greens so that you just told us. Yes. Um, I mean, any of the above. What I, I have currently in, in the freezer is um, a smoked split hock. Um, that I acquired on a trip in in the mountains, and I've got some bacon in there too. Um, but you know, any any of the above or all of the above might work. Okay. All three of you gentlemen have families. Are you the main cooks in the family? I am. Ted. Yeah, I'm, I'm the cook. I am not. Um, I would like to cook more, but my wife is um, more talented a cook than I am, and. Uh, she controls the kitchen, um, and uh, my wife has a really, um, a really curious palate. Um, my wife um, cooks pizza a good bit. Uses one of those cast iron lodge, um, cast iron pizza pans. Um, the same sort of, the same manufacturer that makes cast iron skillets. Blair makes beautiful pizza. I'll pull home as a. Um, Matt was talking about pulling home some sausage or some ham hock or whatever it is. I'll bring home sausage. I'll bring home goat cheese from someplace else. My wife makes a beautiful, um, a beautiful pizza, and those southern ingredients come atop, you know, a pretty traditionalist pizza. That's our life at home. Not bad. Okay. Well, you gentlemen are on the road all the time. Anecdotes you want to share. <laughs> Can you narrow the question? <laughs> like, uh, glamorous life of a food writer. Yeah. Yes. How about what is the? Let's talk about the glamorous Breakfast, life. Ninety-eight of, ounces of coffee, mm-hmm. an egg McMuffin from McDonald's if you're lucky. Okay. Um, no. Um, well, we, you know, it 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 just. I think I don't want to speak for John T, but the, the kind of lives we lead, traveling, talking about food, writing about food, um, it just changes so much. Um, you know, Matt and I were in the mountains of Virginia reporting a story for five days um, on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, the next weekend we were in Memphis reporting about the Memphis and May Barbecue Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, completely different styles of travel. Um, I didn't go home between gigs, so living out of a bag for two weeks um, and, you know, adapting to every different kind of weather situation can be a challenge. 39 degrees well, and it's, to 100 it's, degrees. It's feast or famine. Sometimes you can have a day packed with um, cooking demonstrations where your hands are on the food, and yet you find yourself at the end of the day having not had more than a few tasting bites, and you're starving. And everyone you've cooked for has dined well, but, but you're left, you know, star- literally starving. And, and um, then there are other days when out of pure compulsion because you have to get the story. You're in Chesney, South Carolina, and you don't want to miss any single restaurant that's great there. You've eaten four dinners, and you've just you know stuffed yourself and taken a taste of pretty much everything in Chesney, South Carolina. It's, it's not 
always so sexy. Uh, <laughs> there's, um, you know, like Matt and Ted, I write some beyond the South. And, um, you know, in recent stories I've written, I've been in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, eating, you know, in one day eating or biting into eight different pastrami cheeseburgers. Um, <laughs> you know, next week I go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, to work on a story about the evolution of hummus in America, and I'll be eating jalapeno hummus. Um, you know, some of this is about experience and accumulated experience. Mm-hmm. It's not a search for the best barbecue you've ever had, or in this case, the best pastrami cheeseburger you've ever had. It's about sitting down enough times in enough different restaurants or at enough kitchen tables to learn something. It's not you know, it's not pelt hunting. It's not, I need to go find excellence out here. It's to see people in their setting, to eat that food in the setting, and then try to make sense of it. Okay, I was going to ask, because you say you eat all the meals. And, and one of the things, as a barbecue judge here in South Carolina, when we're judging, we never do more than literally have a taste, mm-hmm. like a forkful. You're stronger than and I And yet am. you're human, right? <laughs> so you can't resist us. Right. Maybe well, just one little bite. If well, it's really couldn't good, hurt. couldn't yeah. hurt. Well, the no, whole thing goes down. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, see, after we have done the judging, right. everything's over there. Then we can help ourselves. <laughs> once, once the decision has been made. But when, when you're doing it, when we're doing it, you have... Well, you've seen us... You've seen, you've seen our, the way we judge here in South Carolina. You know, we ha- you have the like a placemat, and you have right. no more than six samples. Is six it samples, KCBS yeah. sanctioned... Judging have, or we have our own South Carolina. Oh, we I have see. our own South Carolina barbecue sanction. I have a tradition of separatist thought. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we have we have our we have our own standards and we have our own certification process. Mm-hmm. Which you guys ought to t- you ought to go we'll through. invite us. We'll be yeah. judges. Or maybe you want us to compete. I'll compete. You've never turned down a judging gig. <laughs> but competing, well, now well, that's you, hard work. You, you you can't judge for the association unless you've been gone through the course and been certified. All right. Mm-hmm. Sign me up. Yeah, okay. Add that to hey, my hey, list of degrees. I, I promise you, there are folks out there listening. Will be in touch with you and say. Oh, <laughs> 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 well, we have re- we have regional sessions. You might we might have one in the low country. You could do you could hook up and do that, and and then judge, and you and you can have all sorts of fun experience. It, it's really a wonderful cross section of folks who who do the judging. Mm, yeah. We just we, have to. Take is there an class. aspect of the competition competition that involves visitation and smooth talking? No, no. Okay. No, no. This is strictly food because that's the Memphis style. Well, that's we that's, were just that, in that's, Memphis, that's, that's so it's very be, fresh in that's our mind. That's we, we, truly we, we, southern when you have to tell a story about your barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> if you're ju- if you're purely judging the meat, the all other the stuff, rest goes all the, out the window. Yeah, all the rest goes out the window. So. <laughs> So what are we going to talk about tonight? <laughs> so what are we going to talk about tonight? Well, tonight for Take on the South, the question is, what is real Southern cooking? And real is underlined, italicized, boldface. And for the purpose of discussion, John T. Edge has, has said he will defend traditionally Southern cooking, as folk, many folks think of it. Fried chicken, fried pork chops, that kind of thing. And on the other on the other side, the Lee brothers will talk about the continual evolution and development and transformation of Southern cooking. The audience will have given questions, and I'll, after you all make your presentations, uh, we'll sit around a table and we'll talk. We'll have, we'll have a conversation just like we're doing here. Will there be a wrestling aspect of this wherein like, one of them Arm starts and the other right. one tags in? Like there's some kind of like, well, over-the-top rope kind of moment? Well, I mean, having known these fellows for as long, I mean, Ted can finish Matt's sentence for him. I mean, that's... So well, it, actually, we're, we're usually undermining what the other person's saying. So, um, John T., I think you have an advantage. I have an advantage. <laughs> you think that's two against one, but actually... Well, and and then, then the audience can vote. <laughs> no, no. no, there's no. There, that's one of the nice things about the way we run Take on the South, and that is there is no winner or loser. The whole purpose is to inform. Anyway, we're going to have fun, fellas. All right, Alfred's giving me the sign. John T., you get the giggles pretty easily, don't you? I do, I do. And you haven't heard me whooping like a crane yet. It'll come. Or snorting like a hog. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Gentlemen, we have got to wrap up. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Start with 
Matt Lee? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, I have actually, and this is news to you now, I've come up with a formula for what is Southern food, and, and I'm going to roll it out on uh, Take on the South um, tonight. But um, anyhow, the, it, you can boil it down to a formula. Okay. All right. John T. Edge. Wow. I look forward to the formula um, because I need some leitmotif for my life. Um, and uh, here in Columbia, I plan to adjourn in search of a pimento cheeseburger that is not capped with, with what Reynolds Price once termed thinking of packaged pimento cheese. He called it congealed insecticide. So I'm in search of a pimento cheeseburger with real pimento cheese. That's my okay. afternoon. Ted Lee. I'm going to leave you with this thought. Southern food is a living art. It always has been. Okay. All right. Gentlemen, Matt Lee, Ted Lee, John T. Edge, thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program was a rebroadcast of my 2010 conversation with John T. Edge, author and director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, University of Mississippi, and Matt and Ted Lee, award-winning cookbook authors. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, what is real Southern cooking? This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.